Welcome uh, to another interview held by EFSAS, and this one we uh, this time we have uh, with us joining from Australia, uh, Professor uh, Brisky, who is an associate professor of criminology at the School of Law and Criminology at Murdoch University in Perth, in Australia. In a previous career appointment in the federal government, he has uh, done long-term postings to a number of Australian embassies and high commissions, including Pakistan where he lived for a number of years, but also Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Iran. Um, Professor Brisky holds a PhD from the Australian Defence Force Academy at the University of New South Wales. Uh, he also holds a Master of Strategic Affairs um, from the Australian National University, a graduate diploma in Islamic Studies, and two other postgraduate and one undergraduate uh, qualification as well. He has lectured and presented at the Australian Defence Force Staff College, Charles Sturt University, Curtin University, University of Western Australia, Oxford University, and University of Portsmouth. Um, he has appeared in various media uh, in, in Australia, but also abroad, like the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the BBC and La Tribune in, in, in France. Um, you are also the head of school of the Australian Graduate uh, School of Policing and Security at Charles Sturt University. Uh, and you have received commendations for your government service in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Indonesia with uh, regards to counter-terrorism operations and for your role uh, in uh, as part of the first deployment in response to the Bali bombing in 2002. Um, and again, a long list, uh, but, but uh, very important to mention. Uh, recently, you've also received the Murdoch Pro Vice Chancellor's Values Award for your outstanding commitment and contribution to the School of Law and Criminology. Um, you have written extensively on the Pakistani army, its conflicted relationship with terrorism, its Muslim identity, and of course, uh, the geopolitics surrounding it. So, um, Professor Brisky, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a few things, but uh, welcome and, and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Qureshi. It's, uh, I'm very pleased to have received this invitation and uh, very happy to be here to discussing these things, which we're all very interested in. Uh, thank you. And um, just before we start, as we do with, with, with all of our guests, um, you're an academic, of course, but you've also had federal government postings and you have had postings at Australian embassies and high commissions. So uh, how this, you know, how, what, what developed uh, your career into uh, from being a, you know, diplomat or government civil servant towards uh, an academic? Could you, could you maybe tell us something about that? Oh, it's a good question. Thank you for asking. Well, initially, uh, when I was quite younger, I was seeking to obtain an overseas posting. And I thought initially, what can put me ahead of the pack? How can I make myself a more attractive uh, applicant? So I initially, um, apart from some other studies I was doing, I completed a graduate diploma in Islamic studies because I particularly had a wish to, uh, de to be deployed uh, in South Asia. Uh, I wasn't interested, although that would have been good, a posting to London or Washington or The Hague or somewhere, but I had a particular interest, maybe a boy's own interest, in going to um, uh, South Asia because I'd travelled there previously. And um, then when I 
finally did win the posting to Pakistan, I got particularly interested in the Pakistan military, in particular the army, because I undertook a lot of work with them in a whole range of uh, things. Initially, it was with uh, the Pakistan army who provide the personnel for the anti-narcotic force. So I, quite often I'd be in helicopters going up to the Deer Valley in Tamagra, having a look at crop reduction. But then after 2001, of course, everything became terrorism. But in that period, intervening period, I used to talk a lot to um, uh, Pakistani army officers who were, I was forever getting invitations to headquarters at Rawalpindi and different events, celebrating different things, often just as a side guest that I'd be uh, invited to, but uh, I developed a firm interest. And then someone provided me one of the copies of the Pakistan Army Green Books once, and they were fascinating because they're effectively a volume with the opinions of about 60 or so officers on given topics each year. So um, I started having a great deal of interest in that, then um, found myself looking for more copies of this Green Book also found in the very good bookstores in Islamabad, not only could you buy very old books, but you could buy nearly every Pakistan army officer since 1947 has produced, any significant officer has produced an autobiography or written on some topic. So I started collecting these and looking at this body of thought from various officers. Some of them uh, discredited officers, such as Akbar Khan from uh, who wrote the book Raiders in Kashmir about the original 4748. Yes, yeah, so that's how I gained my interest uh, living in Pakistan. Um, and uh, I undertook uh, several uh, return uh, fill-in uh, fill times, if you like, of uh, doing additional duty at the, uh, the Australian High Commission in Islamabad. And what, because you started off saying... Um... And once you got to Pakistan, you got, of course, interested in, in into um, into the Pakistani army because, as you describe in one of your extremely interesting papers, which we're going to discuss, the foundation of Pakistan's strategic culture, you you basically say, you know, the, the contours, the the focus of the Pakistani army or your focus on the Pakistani army uh, is there because it has been arguably the most preeminent political and military actor since the state's formation in 47. Um, but, but coming before that, you, you said you were interested in Islamic studies. So where did that interest come from? Because I understand that now, today, Islamic studies is, of course, very, uh, hmm. you know, a hot cake. But in your time, it, it must, you know, maybe related to Iran or something? Or what, what did you... Well, it was quite arcane. The... Uh... You're true. You're very correct saying that uh, when I initially looked at this, it wasn't uh, wasn't so topical, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the uh, Islamic studies that I undertook um, the, uh, had a particular focus more on Southeast Asian Islam. But I developed uh, I uh, in my minor dissertation for that graduate diploma, I particularly looked at Pakistan because that was uh, I was. Um, as I mentioned, I was aiming to get over to Pakistan and uh, try and win that posting. So I wanted some ammunition in my back pocket, if you like, saying I've completed a minor dissertation on Pakistan and so on and so on. OK, so like I said, you, you talk in this paper, uh, which was published by, uh, by, um, by the Journal of Advanced Military Studies, 
um, called the Foundations of Pakistan's Strategic Culture, where you mentioned that, you know, the focus on the Pakistani army has been because it's the preeminent military and political actor since the state's formation in 47. And you go into a bit of history uh, and then you come, and then for the viewers and for the people who don't know this, then you come to um, something called strategic culture. And you, you, you define that as a theory that argues that there is a distinctive na national style in security and military affairs. So, you know, when, when people hear strategic and strategy and culture, these are two very different things. So you put it together and this, can, can you explain this theory? Certainly, it's a, a very interesting theory. It's um, the modern version of it, and there's probably been three iterations since the mid-70s. A RAND Corporation analyst called Schneider was tasked with uh, providing an overview of the Soviet Union at that time and what could be anticipated by uh, the, inter the, um, the combined effects of history, culture, religion, uh, popular myths. And Snyder came up with this idea of strategic culture. It has its foundations even earlier, however, in some of the earlier ways of warfare studies done by Basil Littlehart, for example, which the Littlehart archives at the King's College are named after. And what it looks at is that certain uh, certain countries or most countries have a, a certain historical background that could uh, influence the way they approach strategy. So, and so, sometimes in the modern day, these things can seem to be counterintuitive, that nations will do things that don't seem to be in their self-interest. For instance, I mentioned in uh, a number of these papers how the... Um, the, the conflicted support for different terrorist groups um, over the course of Pakistan's history and how outsiders after post 9-11 might say, why are they uh, seemingly supporting um, these groups? For instance, in 2011, um, Admiral Mullins of the US said that um, the Haqqani group were a veritable um, uh, yes, unit sir of the ISI. And why Pakistan does this is because of this strategic culture, this enduring belief of the fear of uh, India, that the real conflict is always resided on their uh, eastern border, not the western border, and that they needed, uh, and some of these ideas overlap, they needed to have a pliant Afghanistan and persons in Afghanistan um, as backup, if you like, if a conflict emerged with India. And this overlaps with the idea also of, of strategic depth. Yeah, that's the, the idea that depth, yeah. The idea that Pakistan, especially across from the Wagar border, is quite narrow. And mm -hmm. uh, as we know, in the 1965 war, uh, the Indian military attacked there. And this fear with Pakistan is being... Um, uh, cut in half by an Indian thrust and having sufficient uh, withdrawal space, withdrawal space being into Afghanistan to regroup to continue the battle against India. But uh, strategic culture uh, 
we can see strategic culture uh, in these factors in the early days of Pakistan. And uh, a lot of the uh, conf conflict, if you like, both logistical and armed uh, early after partition resulted in the emergence of this strategic culture. And this strategic culture also has uh, sometimes an invented past, um, a bit like what uh, Anderson called in Imagined Communities, where people will develop this, these beliefs about themselves. Yeah, no, that, and, and you've, you've, of course, and we'll come to the three basic things which you mentioned under this strategic culture. You have, of course, already touched upon this uh, belief of animosity with India. Um, some would even call it that, you know, Pakistan went out of its way to create that enemy when you talk about these beliefs or make the enemy bigger than it actually was. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in your paper, you talk about two other things and we'll come to them one one by one one is of course this and that is interesting in today's world um but also from your uh studies one is of course the muslim identity not only of the state itself but also within the army and then the belief or the misplaced belief or half misplaced belief of being a martial race where you talk mostly about the Pashtuns and the Punjabis uh, being inducted to the army. So one by one, if you just, you know, whichever you choose, if you can explain the Muslim identity and the, the martial race. Uh, thank you, Dr. Krishi. Um The idea of martial race is something that um, originated, uh, it's possibly got a much older history, beliefs in certain certain peoples being more effective in the military. But in regards South Asia, the British uh, were particular masters at this idea, especially after the Great Rebellion or the Mutiny in 1957. Uh, we saw that British power was on the brink of collapsing. Uh, a number of groups within South Asia helped the British restore their primacy, including uh, Sikh soldiers who are considered a martial race. Also, mm -hmm. groups, what, what were called um, in older parlance, Punjabi Muslims, which were, they were said to be a martial race, that these were solid, sorry? Who fought the Sikhs? <laughs> yes, the Sikhs, there were a number of groups, the Sikhs, the Gurkhas, Punjabi Muslims, and some other groups. Now, these groups, um, uh, this the idea ignores the idea of why the British may have been saying these groups are particularly strong. Um, there was a lot of champions of this idea of martial race, which had at the time a sort of social Darwinism, a Darwinistic uh, impact, where they would look at things and a whole sort of pseudoscience developed about this idea of martial race, where they would uh, posit ideas that people from northern colder climates were more effective as soldiers than those from the south of India, which were said to suffer from heat and debilitating diseases. Now, that ignores the fact, of course, that early on in the British uh, interest in India, that Tipu Sultan of the south of India had fought very well against the British. The Marathas mm -hmm. also were quite warlike and had fought well against the British. But 
in the British interest, it was in their interests to promote this idea of martial race. And um, in particular, um, the Potaha Plateau or the Salt Range area, uh, most of the troops came from within a 120 mile circumference of that area of the Punjabi, uh, Punjabi uh, heartlands where these soldiers were um, recruited from. There's a particularly interesting study by Pasha, a Turkish scholar, looking at this the economic idea of the martial race and how he, he traces it back to lack of employment opportunities in the Salt Range and the British taking up this opportunity of employing people from that area. Uh, but traditionally, uh, we look to Pakistan and we have their own authors promoting this idea of the martial race, even though it was meant to have been uh, uh, categorically meant to have been rejected after the First World War, we find it uh, time and time again in publications by British officers and in the uh, post-partition period by Pakistani officers. This idea of a martial race, the first major history of the Pakistan army firmly established this as well. The 1962 volume, History of the Pakistan Army clearly mm. stated how they traced their martial roots back to the Scythians and even a pre-Islamic history, but they tra tracked this history down that the people uh, who live in the area of what is Pakistan today have historically been martial. Mostly the Punjabis, not so much. Uh, they don't really um, consider uh, people from Sindh in that, in that regard very much. Uh, Baluchistan, they recognise that they're fairly warlike, but not really um, in some of these um, very um, social Darwinistic type explanations. They don't really consider them as being uh, possible for them to be regimented and formed into a, a, a solid fighting force. And, and a lot of these books too, we look back to the late 1880s onwards, up until the early 20th century, the, the, the British Indian government actually published guidelines on martial race. They published guidelines, which you can still buy today as reprints of mm -hmm. Punjabi Muslims. And they're sort of like a, an encapsulated volume for officers at the time to understand these people from this particular area. So they would uh, include in these volumes uh, pseudo-anthropological studies and other studies which pointed to the martial qualities of these groups from the Punjab uh, uh, and other groups about their qualities and how one should deal with them. So these volumes you can still buy today. Okay, but do you think that this particular belief of you know the martial race concentrated in the Punjab, where you just mentioned Sindh and Balochistan, do you think that that has actually been the basis of this, you know, discrepancy within these various people in Pakistan. As you know, Punjab is mostly the, the most, you know, prosperous province. Punjabis mm. dominate the military, but also the civil service, also politics. So do you know that this has this, this has been the foundation of this imbalance in the country? And and as you know, you know, the you have you have been posted in Bangladesh. One of the major reasons of Bangladesh, uh, you know, wanting to be independent was that they felt that they were treated uh, inferior 
by 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 then what was West Pakistan? Uh, that's certainly the case. Um, there are people who dispute that, mm -hmm. but the historical evidence and record, it's it's very clear that um, the uh, some people argue there was a form of Punjab colonization, a Punjabi mm -hmm. imperialism that replaced the British. Uh, but it's clear in uh, the elites, especially the military, uh, were dominated by the Punjab. Uh, no, that's not with, that's not saying that others weren't included. Of course, General Zia came originally. His family took part in the great movement across from India. They but came from in, the, in the majority. Sheriff General Musharraf came from India. Yes, yes. So, um, and we've had others. We've had um, Musa Khan, who was a Hazara from Baluchistan, <coughs> who was the chief of army. But he was still firmly under the control of Ayub Khan, who was a Pushtun. Um, we've had Yaya Khan. Um, so we see this dominance of two groups. And this was identified even um, at partition. And um, uh, the two initial leaders of the heads of the Pakistan army were two British officers, as we know. Mm -hmm. um, but even they identified the fact that it was valuable uh, Masurvi and then uh, identified the fact that it was valuable that the army should be constituted of these groups. And we see in countless records from British officers <coughs> of 110 British officers who stayed on after partition that their reason for staying there was because they saw working with a Punjabi uh, unit being as the equivalent of working with a British unit and that the idea of the, the martial race uh, qualities of these soldiers lived on. And in fact, Ayub Khan used this in particular uh, as a vehicle to secure American aid during the uh, uh, 50s. The idea that here we have this martial race army who are Muslims and pervious to communism that are here for you. And he... Initially, the Americans uh, swallowed this idea that Ayub Khan was there because he was wanting to help face the great threat from the Soviets and Chinese when, in fact, he was using it to uh, uh, obtain arms uh, in preparation for any conflict with India. So he joined the Baghdad Pact and then CETO, and he got these weapons and it was only in the late 60s, or late uh, 50s, that eventually the thoughts of the Americans, which we can find in their released cables, came to identify that Ayub Khan uh, was very uh, successfully obtaining these weapons and that because he was he knew the Americans thought the the Indians were non-aligned and that Nehru would not help them, so he was uh, categorically exploiting that that uh, sentiment. Well, would you would you therefore agree or you know in some way? Uh, could you therefore explain the idea that indeed this this martial race and this what you just called the Punjabi imperialism uh, might be the foundation of the Pashtuns, the Baloch, and some movements in the Sindh who have been echoing almost the same sentiments which Bangladesh did in the in the sixties and the seventies that they feel that they are disadvantaged 
that Punjab is basically, you know, ruling over them, taking out the resources. Uh, would you would you agree to that, or you? I, I think there's a lot of truth to that because even in 1971 and 1974, uh, the conflict uh, was um, expanded against the Baluch and uh, where Pakistan also involved at the time uh, Iranian forces. But um, And of course, we have uh, Baluch movement still alive and well. Uh, and there being a lot of um, contested uh, accounts of what is occurring in Balochistan uh, regarding the targeting of Baluch nationalists and otherwise. And uh, historically, we've seen uh, Baluch parties, uh, Mangol and others, uh, objecting to uh, what they see as the centre, the Punjab, exploiting their natural resources. Okay. And then you also come to the Muslim identity, which is part of this strategic culture. And before you answer that and explain the Muslim identity, apart from the Pakistani, you, you talked about the Punjabi Muslims. Uh, but at the same time, this Muslim identity inherently also talks about the about the Muslim Ummah, the larger uh, Muslim uh, community in the world. So that's one, but I would I would maybe argue that as we know the the, the Islam um, you know came into or, or flourished from the Arabian Peninsula, and you know those um, Arabs have also for a long time uh, claimed to be martial race because you know there were these conquests all over the world so what makes pakistan different because i don't see the arabs claiming the muslim identity and the martial race but you do see the pakistan and in some sense you know the afghans uh at some point of time although they have a lot of influence from central asia of course but you see them claiming this um this these identities whereas an arab might say from a nationalist perspective, well, these were not, you know, these were not South Asian um, conquests or, or victories. These were Arab victories. And we were the first Muslims. And we were the one who, you know, these are our claims, just like the, the Turks have their own claims. Yes, that's very true. And um, this idea of martial race, uh, and uh, I'll return to that, that point, um, because, as I mentioned earlier, the British were were uh, significant in promoting this idea, uh, even after partition, when uh, the the two first commander in chiefs was, were British. But um, the British also, in the French and Dutch, also used this idea, and even the Americans, mm -hmm. uh, the French in what is now Algeria, uh, after they. Uh, their imperial exercise there and colonizing, they uh, they decided that the Kabyle people were martial race and the Arabs were not. Mm. So uh, they tried to separate the population that way. The British in Cyprus initially said that the Turks, uh, the Turkish Muslim population were the martial race and the Greeks were not. Um, in uh, In Indonesia, 
the Dutch identified the Ambonese. Again, it's sort of a divide and conquer thing we see over and over in different countries. The Americans did this with the Maccabee people in the Philippines after their uh, uh, conquest uh, and the defeat of Spain in the Spanish-American War. But the Pakistanis, and you're right, because a lot of people say, well, what are they going on about? Um, and, and interestingly enough, um, the Pakistanis also draw comparisons with Israel. They see themselves as being this population surrounded by enemies, but they're a vigorous religious people who will uh, resist and persevere. And you find that in, uh, there's a particular volume in the Green Books where uh, Pakistani officers reflect on, they, they provide a caveat saying, we don't like the, the vile Israelis, of course, but one has to admire what they've done because here was a small nation beset by enemies and they used their religion as a motivational force and they conquered uh, enemies uh, uh, beyond uh, what anyone would expect them to be able to do. And there's a book, too, by Faisal Devsji called um, uh, Muslim Zion, where he looks at this, too, this idea. But it's a particularly interesting idea. Even uh, General Zia has reflected on this idea of comparison of the uh, the. Uh, Israel and Pakistan. But that's um, very interesting because when you talk about Israel, there, of course, um, it's it, there is a historical context to it, which goes back to the mm. holy books of 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 the Jew uh, the uh, the Jewish people, and after that, even Christianity and Islam. Mm. Whereas when we talk about Pakistan, like a thousand years ago, most of them were Hindus. Yes, well, that, that's that's very true. And uh, what they what they're very good at um, uh, morphing into these histories is that uh, they combine that history of conquerors coming across through the uh, over the Hindu Kush from Central Asia, the original Arab invasion in Sindh in seven twenty one, and how they've have uh, this uh, this heritage has been something that's been expanding since then. That, yes, they were converted uh, from Hinduism, and uh, but this is part of their history now that they've... Um, this is their heritage, and this is their destiny, and this is the destiny of um, uh, their, their combined history with the Central Asian peoples, uh, with a series of uh, Central Asian invasions that occupied most of India, uh, their connection to the Mughal uh, Empire, which again was uh, Muslim. But they again, this is something where they say, well, look what our history used to be, the Mughal history, how we we controlled India. And even but look at... Mughal, people, isn't like, the Mughal history Central Asian? Well, it has nothing... To do with this, like it's not Pakistani or Afghan history. They came from, uh, you know, they were Turks. Yes, that that's true. But now they, I mean, they had the slave empires, as you know, and so forth. But these conquerors stayed. They uh, intermingled with local population, and those populations 
that were originally perhaps uh, Hindu, those that wanted to converted some, um, and we know even going down to Bangladesh, there was pushes where they pushed people, Hindu population out into the Shundarbans. You can go there today and see old Hindu temples in the Shundarbans. But they, this was a population that stayed there and developed this empire. They had this, of course, because Islam didn't come from South Asia, it came from Arabia. So but these conquerors, a mixture of Arab um, in Sindh in 721, and then later conquests by Baba and all the rest uh, during the Mughal times from Central Asia, they stayed there and created this um, heritage and these people which now see their forebears as being those people. And sometimes they, like I mentioned, they even link it back to pre-Islamic times because in that, that first history of the Pakistan army, they relate even the fact that Alexander the Great, um, when he was near Multan, was the only time he got badly injured. And that was from uh, one of the uh, uh, fighters in Multan, pre-Islamic Multan. So they even say, even though those guys weren't Muslims, look at look at their um, fighting qualities. There might, so, there might be even a, a misconception, you know, I've heard of this misconception, some people in South Asia especially, and especially among the Muslims, sometimes almost even claim claiming that Alexander was Muslim because, you know, he's mentioned in the Quran as Sikandar. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, th there might be some misconception over there. But when you coming back to this to this Muslim identity, which this is very interesting, you talk about this Muslim identity, which essentially at some point of time even develops into pan-Islamism, and you've 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 written that uh, extensively that this pan-Islamism or this Muslim identity of Pakistan and especially the Pakistani army was belied by two facts: one, of course, Bangladesh, because they were also Muslim. Second, even with Afghanistan, where there have, you know, since the 19th century, they still have this ongoing uh, issue with their borders, uh, which is the Durand line. Um, and, you know, so you talk about it, and maybe you can talk about that a bit more in detail, about this Muslim identity and how it's built up, but at the same time that actions on the ground, which is 71 Bangladesh and from I think 18 some 1846 or so until today, this this Durand line, which belies this Muslim unity or this this pan-Islamism. Yes, that's uh, this is part of uh, as we know, Pakistan uh, was created largely due to the efforts of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, uh, the, the Kade, and his idea for what it, Pakistan would be. Uh, pretty much didn't look like that uh, fairly shortly after independence. Um, Pakistan very quickly became, uh, despite the Cade's um, assurances that this will be a country for everyone if you're a Hindu and stay here, good. Um, that wasn't the case. But the idea was that Islam was the glue to keep mm -hmm. disparate ethnic groups together. Um, thousands a thousand miles separated um, the Punjab, uh, Khyber Pukhtunwa or Northwest Frontier Province, then Sindh and Baluchistan from uh, East Pakistan. They were even talking about 
Islamistan, uh, you know. Yes. And that, um, uh, I mean, at the time of even of uh, uh, participation, uh, of par uh, partition, people such as the founder uh, Mordudi of Jamaat Islami had referred to Jinnah as the Kafa al Azam, uh, even though he did change his mind and then emigrate to Pakistan. But the idea was that Islam would be the glue. But of course, who's Islam? Because there's so many different forms of Sunni, Sunni, Sunni Islam, but uh, and Shiite is Pakistan's got about a 33% population uh, Shia. And then you have, um, you know, uh, significant groups of Barolvi and, and other groups, um, Pira, Pagaro, and those groups. And then, of course, across in East, uh, East Pakistan, or now Bangladesh, you had a country that had its own language, own script, well, uh, an Indian script, but own traditions, uh, own heroes, myths, literature. And this was a significant factor, as we know, when Jinnah went to um, uh, Dhaka just after uh, independence and mentioned that uh, Urdu would become the national language, it wasn't greeted with much uh, um, uh, affection because, again, uh, the cultural uh, and religious identity of those in East Pakistan in the majority was very different. Uh, East Pakistan at the time also had a much larger Hindu population, also included populations of tribal peoples uh, that uh, went down towards the border with Myanmar. But uh, it had a very firmly attached uh, attachment to their own culture. And as we know, uh, when uh, uh, the Bangabandhu and the Six Points, which ignited the... Uh, the war occurred. Uh, this was after a, a long experience of uh, Bangladeshis or East Pakistanis feeling disenfranchised, cut out of government positions, even though Nazimuddin and others uh, had been leaders, but being thought of as being this resource base where jute, all their jute earnings would support, support the West and having little uh, little uh, involvement in the military or government. And, uh, of course, when uh, when the Bangabandhu won the election, uh, it wasn't being accepted either by the army or by Bhutto at the time. No, and you, okay, you, you now we've talked about the Muslim identity. We will keep coming back to that. The martial race, I think that's that's quite clear with the influence of the, um, of the Britishers as well. And then you also note that the influence of uh, this Muslim identity, Islam, but also then this martial race, makes the army of Pakistan do irrational things uh, with regard to uh, India. And you, you specifically mentioned Operation Gibraltar in 1965. Mm. Um, I would, I would maybe go a step further and even say that this might not be as irrational as it seems. This might just feed in to that Muslim identity and the martial race. Because 
what identity and what you know martial race can you claim if you don't create or go out of your way to create an enemy hmm. well that's true and of course for a military to remain relevant and being the pinnacle of the structure and as we've heard said in many times that uh, pakistan's a praetorian state it's not a country with an army it's an army with a country and we've had the famous statement of Hans Morgenthau in 1956 in the New Statesman saying Pakistan doesn't have a historical reason to exist. That uh, the only thing that Morgenthau at the time, which really angered Pakistanis, was their hate of India. And that uh, the military had to have some raison d'etre to exist. And that was this existential fear of India and um, the isn't uh, mostly isn't this fear mostly you know created by these irrational operations which you talk about Operation Gibraltar but you also just mentioned in the beginning you mentioned uh, then Brigadier Akbar Khan uh, afterwards general who wrote Raiders in Kashmir um, 97 you mentioned of course India was very much involved over there but the, the foundation of it came from the issues between West and East Pakistan, you talked about the elections. So this, I'm, you know, no denying the fact that there is animosity between India and, and Pakistan, but hasn't the, the Pakistani army or the, its, its establishment gone out of its way to actually fuel that and create even more enmity? Uh, I would say there's a good argument for that being the case. There's also, as we know, the army is much more than an army. It's also an economic enterprise with um, interests in industries across Pakistan, from the Fauji Foundation to the, the army uh, dairy farms to it has fingers in many pies in real estate industry. Even when I lived there, there was an army factory producing jam. So, um, they have um, uh, significant interests. And the army also maintained that they have uh, primacy in things such as always have had primacy in foreign affairs. Um, and um, that the army has become uh, an institution and an enterprise that uh, is self-generating and over the years, it has become this because it's always been at the pinnacle of power, nearly always. If sometimes it's had to retract or withdraw a little, it's not far away. As we know, there's the idea of the Troika that was penned some time back about the army, prime minister and the president. But we even see recently uh, the army will make its interests clear. And those that uh, that uh, combat it in any way uh, will soon find themselves um, uh, either very much um, displaced, uh, possibly criminally charged, or in some cases, depending on the person, disappear. Mm. Um, but the army has uh, a long history of. Uh, being involved and encroaching upon other areas of government, industry, 
administration and enterprise. You, you just said that anyone who has a different view or dares to do to counter that would be either disappeared or in jail. Well, occasionally there's been arguments made about journalists who have uh, uh, ended up dead, even journalists not in Pakistan uh, who have ended up... Um, yeah, there were a few cases in Kenya, in, in Sweden. Yes. Yeah, in the Kenyan case in particular. But we find this um, uh, more often than not to say that it's not an aberration. It seems to be a pulled out of a playbook that the army have. If someone is uh, creates or perpetuates some type of um, irritant to them uh, that affects their reputation or primacy, these people uh, have a way of uh, being relegated. So you're almost not saying it with so many words, but still to to you know to make it a bit clear, you you have the feeling that the Pakistani army might target dissidents or has targeted dissidents overseas. Well, yes, that's that's uh, we we know that the uh, the ISI have a long arm. Uh, like many um, agencies like that around the world. But, um, yes, we can see that they do keep a firm eye on dissidents or others who may be irritants to their interests. Okay. You you talk about, and then we come to one of the major issues, which, of course, you know, we, we talked about this, this animosity with India or this, this, this created fear of a vengeful India, which when we come, of course, to the issue of Kashmir, uh, which has been one of the bases of it, I do, uh, you, you mentioned the Sikh uh, fighters, I, 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 I do recall Aisha Jalal writing in her book, Partisans of Allah, which you also mentioned, you don't mention that book, but you mentioned this slogan of Islam in danger. Um, and Aisha Jalal writes that, you know, this was the this was this was the the slogan used in Bahawalpur, uh, which is today the Jashim Muhammad's um, you know uh, uh, headquarters. This this particular slogan, Islam in danger, was used against the forces of Ranjit Singh, the Sikhs, uh, and and you say in your in your writings that. This slogan has been over and over used to put Muslim fighters and not necessarily only military, but you mentioned Lashkars uh, and yeah, Lashkars, you would say today terrorist groups or militant groups, to put them together under this one banner of Islam is in danger, whether that's Kashmir or wherever, and we need to fight for that. Uh, yes, that's... Uh... That's correct. I mean, even the governor of the Northwest Frontier Province mm -hmm. uh, at the time of the first Kashmir War, he recalls in his uh, memoirs of a group uh, approaching him who wishing to put together a Lashkar to go to Kashmir because they said, they told the governor that uh, they feared what was happening to their uh, Muslim brethren in Kashmir and that Islam was, in effect, in danger. And, but we see um, we see uh, a remarkable 
diversity and how this was undertaken. We have uh, at the time of the first Kashmir War, when British uh, uh, British officers still led most elements of the Pakistan Army, we saw a quite a, a covert operation of officers taking leave to undertake uh, uh, participating in Lashkars and helping direct them at the time of the 47-48 war. We also find a few instances of British soldiers doing the same, British officers. It's been a couple of notice, noticeable uh, instances. Uh, in the British Library a few years ago, I was looking at the case... General Brown was the one who led the mutiny against the Maharaja in Gilead, Baltistan. Yes, that's one. That's a very well-known one. But there was uh, other officers who directed artillery shelling against the Indian, Indian soldiers in Kashmir as well and who were um, arrested for doing this. Um, a number of cases of... Uh, I can send you the links to a, a couple of interesting documents about Major Sheldon and others who took part in directing uh, and helping with Lashkar operations against the Indian state forces. There was even, an, um, you've probably heard, there was an American soldier as well involved in leading a Lashkar of 8,000. So um, uh, it's very interesting. But the what motivated these people to take part was the idea of Islam and danger and that the uh, Dogra ruler of Kashmir had betrayed them and signing the instrument uh, only, of accession. Only the instrument of accession, of course, was only signed after the invasion. Mm -hmm. I think the Dogra ruler for a long, long time, uh, because Indian Pakistan came, you know, India 14th of August, uh, or Pakistan 14th of August, India 15th of August, um, the Dogra ruler delayed, of course, his decision for a long, long time because, in essence, he wanted to remain independent. Yes, uh, and, and he was he was forced to sign this instrument accession when this uh, this this invasion took place. But you know, apart from that, from that, what I would like to understand your perspective on this that the rallying cry was, of course, Islam in danger which even went up to the Northwest Frontier Province. So people in the Northwest Frontier Province at some point of time felt Islam is in danger and then were facilitated by the army to go and fight into Kashmir. But history tells us when they went there, it was basically looting and plundering. Um, well, there was a lot of that. And uh, uh, their failure, apart from the, um, the injection of uh, further Indian troops, uh, but there's certainly, I know I interviewed uh, one of the British officers who was observing on the border at that time, interviewed him in Britain in 2010, and he distinctly remembers a lot of the raiders returning with loot, including people, women, yeah, um, yeah. bringing them back across the border. So, um, and well, we know... Even how, just to understand, because you've done Islamic studies and you've spent so much time there, how do you explain that Someone feels in, you know, Northwest Frontier Province, feels that Islam is in danger, then goes and travels and is facilitated to fight and then ends up instead of, you know, again, not saying that that should have happened, but instead of, you know, maybe killing non-Muslims, ends up looting and plundering the same people that he was going to protect there. Well, that that's that's a, an interesting question because... Um... 
uh, that could be partly cultural, the concept of raiding or war parties, um, one of the attractive options for it, apart from Islam and danger, is the potential loot you might get at the end of it too. Um, so, and that's been a factor in uh, warfare for, for millennia, of course, the attraction of loot, um, because these aren't paid groups, they're um, people who raised the rallying cry and responded, but of course, there is the attraction of loot. There were, of course, plenty of people were killed, non-Muslims, including nuns, Christians, British administrators, and many others who were killed during that time. Um, there's a number of very interesting accounts of that. Yeah, um, some people even say that, uh, some historians have said that the fact that they kept on looting, killing, and plundering in a city called Baramula was the reason that they didn't reach the capital, Srinagar, before the Indian army came in. Yes, well, that's uh, that's uh, uh, most likely the case, and that if they hadn't have been uh, so focused on Baramula, maybe they would have been focused on another area as well. But this, of course, uh, these weren't... Uh, militarily disciplined they were probably independently quite successful fighters as we've seen from the history of frontier warfare in the northwest they uh, but they had a particular idea of warfare and a lot of that idea of warfare was not to become engaged and sustained fighting against someone who might actually kill you mm. um, so the idea of striking a blow the attraction of loot um and we saw this this idea of of that uh, conflict even um, uh, uh, repeated in uh, fictional books, fictional accounts um, of the conflict in Kashmir, where again it was uh, in fictional accounts that were just posited as one of these warlike uh, individuals attacking a uh, defenseless population which in many cases it was. But you're right. I mean, their lack of discipline um, in, in many cases, we do see, find many accounts, however, of Indian officers saying, clearly these are not just tribal raiders because in some uh, parts of the theatre of conflict, they were quite disciplined and were using mortars and uh, supported by heavy machine guns. So clearly, Abakhan mentions in his book "Raiders in Kashmir" as well. That why, that's why he was basically, you know, outcast after mm. that. Mm. And a lot of and a number of Indian, uh, well, they even invited into this war members of the INA, Indian National Army, who had been um, uh, uh, assisted the Japanese during the war, Second World War, and who had been generally not allowed back into either the Indian or uh, Pakistan armies. But in the case of this Kashmir conflict, we find a number of those ex-INA figures who again in their uh, autobiographies relate how they took part in this these hostilities and helping the tribal Lashkar groups in their fight. And now we come to, again, this is of course history that we move, you know, talking Kashmir, this happened in 47, 48. Then we had um, 65, which you call which you call a very irrational operation. Um, 
And then it took a very, and coming to today or, you know, recent history, then it took a very different form that at some point of time, the army taught, and this was also, of course, a fallout of the of the Soviet-Afghan war, that it taught that, you know, maybe it doesn't need to go itself to fight, and maybe it could use these hardened, battled, hardened mujahideen from the Afghan Soviet war to rally them again, again under this Islam in danger cry, which essentially in the 90s started a proxy war in Kashmir. Uh, yes, well, that's, again, there's a long history of that with the Pakistan army. Uh, during the 1971 war, they co-opted tribesmen in uh, East Pakistan, Miso tribesmen to help them. Uh, and they also, uh, and that was part of if we look at uh, uh, the memoirs of Musa Khan, uh, the commander-in-chief of the army, he talks a great deal about the co-opting of uh, different groups to assist as proxies in warfare. But and, uh, here again, in, in, in Kashmir, it was slightly different. Yes, of course, there were, of course, co-opting local people in Kashmir. There were, you know, dozens of, 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 of militant groups who were established there, who were essentially Kashmiris. But the majority of them were still Punjabis who came over. And, hmm. you know, that's something which didn't happen in, in Bangladesh, perhaps because it was too far away and hmm. it was a big country in between. But uh, this, so I think, you know, the, the interesting fact, and Afghans even, so the interesting fact here is that there was a lot of co-opting of Kashmiris in, in, in the Indian administered part of Kashmir, but many of them were all, again, rallied against that cry of Islam in danger from the, uh, from the Punjab and, of course, the Northwest Frontier Province. Yes, well, uh, it's very interesting because there are different accounts of how uh, Pakistanis who uh, were uh, placed into Kashmir were surprised that local Kashmiris would identify them to the Indian Army and say, the, we don't know who these people are. Can you look at them? We're a bit worried. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there was numerous instances of that. And there seemed to be a great deal of incoherence, if we can believe the autobiographies of a number of Pakistani generals about this too. Gul Hassan Khan, who mm -hmm. was also a former uh, chief of the Pakistan army, who was sacked by Bhutto, he mentions in particular uh, how there was this, uh, how he couldn't fathom uh, Operation Gibraltar mm -hmm. because he, in his dealings with government figures and others, uh, he felt that, um, uh, and he was trying to analyse this after the operation, uh, because a lot of Pakistani officers also referred to Operation Gibraltar as being more disastrous than the Bay of Pigs that the Americans had undertaken. But Gul Hassan Khan also mentions how he was left with the belief that many senior Pakistani government figures were on first terms basis with a number of Kashmiri figures, which clearly wasn't the case. He, I think he even writes in his book, I was under the impression these guys were best of chums, but it turns out they didn't even know each other. So he again talks of this, how they were trying to uh, uh, ignite this conflict and the belief that there would, there, there would be this autonomous uprising by Kashmiri people 
once a few Pakistani soldiers had been infiltrated into the valley, which mm -hmm. didn't happen, of course, uh, in many cases. In some cases, they a few people did assist. In other cases, as I mentioned, people identified to the Indian security forces suspicious behaviour by these people who they didn't know. Yeah, which also happened in the in the in the, in the Kargil War. Hmm. Uh, basically, these these infiltrators were identified by the local people there. The Indian hmm. army had no idea um, because of the terrain that that these yes. infiltrations were happening, and they took out. I think I think it was a few weeks before the Indian army got to know, and that too by by locals telling them. Hmm. Um, but you, this 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 thought of vengeful Hindu India. And this animosity, this continues until this day. We yes. had um, we had recently an uh, an Afghan uh, on an on an interview with us um, to 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 whom I post uh, I, I asked the same question um, in the sense that many of India's strategic uh, you know policies have actually been in response to China. Uh, much of them after 62 especially so uh, and and then you know many pakistan's uh, policies have been in response to india which basically is doing this in response to 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 the chinese and then there was this afghan minister who who told us that 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 she felt that india had moved on um and that moved on beyond pakistan um and that Pakistan should perhaps do the same, move on beyond Pakistan, uh, beyond India. Do you think that's possible with this Muslim identity and, and this reflection in, in, in the state's policy? Well, it would be a good thing mm -hmm. uh, because I think it's a, a correct um, estimate that India is a fairly much an economic uh, juggernaut. Uh, India sees issues, as we just saw with the recent meeting between Mr. Modi and Xi Jinping. India is very sensitive about security issues, but it feels very confident in its own sense of abilities to fend those uh, problems. But um, we, of course, uh, see in Pakistan the continuance of this uh, uh, board where people get shuffled around if they don't if they upset the army, they soon find themselves out. Um, mm -hmm. The military haven't lost any of their primacy, despite it being seemingly so since since uh, the dissolution of Mr. Musharraf's last uh, interregnum. But the army is still uh, in the driver's seat. Okay. Uh, and the army, of course, as we've just discussed, it's not in the army's interests to dismiss or embrace India. We saw, we saw early on in Mr. Musharraf's term, even after Kargil, we saw a little bit of reproachment, the opening of the Lahore-Delhi bus line, and of course that then got closed again because of Kargil. But we did see uh, Mr. Musharraf visit India, but these things always seem to be stillborn. Um, yeah, you have it, of course. You know, you had I, I think even after. The Lahore bus, uh, Manmohan Singh and Musharraf took this very much forward, and then of course Mumbai happened. It was Mumbai before that? There was two thousand and two, 
the parliament attack uh, and all these things, which again, if we're talking of terrorism theory, we'd be talking of these as spoiling actions. By many people in India, but also internationally say that it's, well, well, Musharraf was of course also army chief at then, but in essence, it's the army using its proxies to derail any prospects of peace with India because otherwise it would lose its grip on the country. So is there some truth in that? Uh, I suspect there is. It's uh, uh, the idea of spoiling. It's got a long history as a theory in terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, if people are upset and don't actually want to go to the, uh, the peace table, uh, they will spoil it. So that can be via an attack, something, some uh, grievous uh, attack which occurred on the Indian parliament, the Mumbai attacks, absolutely. Um, but there's there's countless examples of this where um, something will happen which will just make it simply impossible for Mr. Vajpayee to continue talking with Mr. Musharraf at the time or other Indian leaders. How can we have peace when another country commits these egregious acts of terrorism upon us? Okay, and now coming to, to today, you're, or, yeah, to, today, you, you just said the Pakistani army is still very much in the driving seat. And it can use, of course, these many proxies it has to derail any peace efforts. Now, it seems, and I'm not sure, but there have been many analysts also in Pakistan saying that, well, you know, we have had this policy for a long time, but mm. now we're changing and we're not changing because we want to. But basically, we're changing because these Frankenstein monsters have, have you know, are now acting against us. Hmm. Um, and uh, which has also been one of the reasons last in, in a, one of our last interviews, we talked about this, this sort of tension between the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani military establishment. Hmm. Uh, the Afghan Taliban would have, of course, not been in power had it not been for the Pakistani army. But today it seems that they're it seems that they're their own entity uh, and not as much under influence of the Pakistanis anymore. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe you can you can explain that. Well, it's, uh, yes, um, the Taliban and the Pakistan army, uh, we saw immediately after 2001, after the initially, uh, which was uh, the American actions, enduring freedom and so on in Afghanistan, uh, we saw a degree of uh, peace for a very brief period. Uh, then, uh, of course, uh, that developed into uh, and the end game, which occurred in 2021 with the ejection of the Americans. But uh, the Pakistani, as you say, there's been a long history of Pakistani uh, involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, 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 there's biographies by Pakistani generals relating the fact of Bhutto wanting more influence in Afghanistan and who could the Pakistani army co-opt for them. Um, we also see uh, uh, a number of examples, if they can be believed, uh, of uh, there's a book by Anthony Schaefer, an American colonel, who claimed to have captured ISI people actively leading uh, Taliban uh, formations. Uh, but it was fairly clear that 
both a mixture of support from Pakistan as well as volunteers from Pakistan have always formed a large part of um, uh, uh, groups in in Afghanistan as well. But uh, uh, the Taliban, it's interesting to see their their, their current uh, uh, footprint in the region, uh, their own problems. There seems to be continuing uh, internal insurgency problems for the Taliban. Uh, but there is, uh, I don't think the Taliban's ever been completely controlled by the Pakistan military, but uh, they've always been a, uh, a beast that's been, that could be pointed in one direction sometimes, but also having their own interests as well. And, and these, like, again, when you say, and we have seen that recently with, uh, with former Prime Minister Imran Khan, that the army is indeed still in the driving seat. Um, how do you see this uh, this issue between the Pakistani army and the TTP, the, the, the Pakistani Taliban? How do you see this developing? Well, again, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, relationship because we saw earlier this century uh, uh, groups that the Pakistan army uh, allegedly supported. But then we also had uh, sustained uh, activities against certain groups. We saw earlier in the century SWAT being taken over by different groups, uh, major Pakistani military operations to reclaim that area. Uh, we also saw in current day Khyber Pukhtunwa uh, different militant groups, TTP and others operating uh, ostensibly with, uh, if not with the act of approval, uh, with uh, the knowledge of the Pakistan military. Um, it's uh, not unlike during the uh, pre-independence days and how the British managed some groups in uh, the northwest frontier that uh, sometimes would be outbreaks of violence where they couldn't control people Another time, through a mixture of support, money, and other uh, and other carrots that they would uh, offer them, they were able to control them. But um, I think it's still there's still a degree of of relationship, uh, of interest, of mutual interest between the Pakistani Taliban and the military. Okay, you still think there is a relationship of mutual interest. Yes. Okay. I mean, it's these things are always difficult because naturally Pakistani people will say, but look at how many of our soldiers have been killed fighting these people or others. So um, there's always layers to these uh, relationships, uh, different layers, different contacts, um, different groups, subgroups who have sub-loyalties to, uh, to particular persons. And... and I'm coming to the because I'm coming to the the last question of this interview, and that is that indeed, how do you see this terrain of because you are of course a counterterrorism you know specialist, how do you see this terrain of terrorism in um in South Asia especially, but also in Pakistan, Kashmir? How do you see this developing? I 
many think that the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban is there to stay. Then you have the TTP, but you also have the ISKP. And apart from that, you have these many groups who have been very, very active. We just mentioned the parliament attack and we mentioned Mumbai. So the Lashkar, the Lashkar Toiba, the Jaish Muhammad, all these, this, this conversion of, of, you know, a, um, a pot, a boiling pot of terrorist groups on such a small uh, landmass of Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan and, and, and some northern parts of India. Uh, and then, of course, uh, on the other side in Xinjiang, the Chinese claim that there are, you know, Uyghur terrorist groups. Um, mm. How do you see this, this, this region developing in terms of terrorism and counterterrorism? Well, uh, it's an interesting question. As you say, South Asia, uh, I think on the last count, India identified 42 different separate terrorist entities that uh, uh, are either fully active or semi-active in India, uh, especially in the Northeast, where we often don't hear a lot of the media about what occurs there, but we've had, as you know, incidents where over 40 police officers and military have been killed in engagements with uh, entities in, in the Northeast. Um, some of these uh, uh, autonomy, autonomy groups seeking autonomy, other uh, semi-Naxalite groups and others. So that's going to uh, continue. There's a number of issues uh, in India. There's uh, a dominant narrative um, provided by Mr Modi, of course, but there's many uh, competing voices there. Also in Bangladesh, there is uh, activities there. Uh, we look at uh, historically in Bangladesh where when I was living there just uh, earlier this century, there was still uh, 1971 war criminals from um, uh, militant groups in Bangladesh being imprisoned and executed. Um, we still have, uh, then they had issues with Jamaat Mujahideen Bangladesh, other groups. We had... Uh, was yes, under Chittagong Hill tracks groups. Um, then with currently the uh, dreadfully large refugee camps in around Cox's Bazaar groups uh, of Rohingya who naturally uh, uh, are not pleased with the Myanmar government and are actively organising against them. Uh, to then back to swinging back across to uh, Pakistan where we have different groups. We have a long history of groups there involved in Islamist to sectarian issues. Um, uh, as we know, uh, there was a long history of the MQM being uh, particularly active in and around uh, Karachi. Uh, then we have different, uh, different groups, pro-Shia groups, anti-Shia groups in Pakistan. And over the course of this century, we've had uh, significant levels of attacks against Shia mosques, retaliatory strikes. We've had strikes against army schools. Um, we've had uh, uh, the Baluch Liberation Army and other groups. So uh, this is going to continue percolating and there's going to be continue to be uh, these activities in South Asia, in Pakistan. 
uh, the situation in Afghanistan that could uh, develop in uh, uh, in a manifestly different uh, ways about what's going to occur there. Um, but in Pakistan, uh, we as long as we have um, uh, one particular group and we have the failure of democracy, really, to represent all groups, uh, we're going to naturally see people who um, come to find that they believe their only response is in terrorism. And then my, my really my last question with, 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 with China injecting itself more and more into South Asia, mm -hmm. uh, they just recently had a, had an oil deal signed with the Taliban. They're they're building this corridor in Pakistan, uh, and of course they have trouble with uh, India on the line of actual control. And then of course you know as you just mentioned this terrorism landscape uh, in South Asia. Do you foresee a war in the foreseeable future? Do you foresee um, this 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 boiling pot or this volcano someday erupting? Uh, that, that's, that's a very good question. And um, as you said, it is a boiling pot. Uh, we have so many emerging groups who have uh, grievances. And I forgot to have mentioned, of course, a few years ago when we had the Red Mosque, Lao Masjid Mosque issue in uh, Islamabad even, we had the issue there of uh, of uh, assaults and killings of Chinese citizens, detention of Chinese citizens. Uh, a particular group who took over the Lao Masjid had grievances against the Chinese club, which I used to be just down the street from where I lived, operating quite openly a brothel in the middle of Islamabad, which everyone said it wasn't a brothel, but everyone knew it was. Um, but we've had uh, Chinese citizens targeted in Balochistan, in Afghanistan. Uh, so, uh, and the uh, uh, the Chinese investment's been long-standing, and as we know, uh, Pakistan always has treated China as their great friend, even though the great friend didn't come to their aid in 1965 or 1971. Um, the great friend is someone that, uh, uh, and now we've seen the uh, a great deal of investment in uh, infrastructure, uh, in uh, the port areas uh, of Pakistan, roadways, development. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, this we find the history of this in the Karakoram Highway development. But uh, going back to your question, will there be a war? Um, well, uh, a war that we've seen eruptions of conflict between India and China, which they've been trying to um, uh, dampen down. But a war between Pakistan and India, um, I, I don't see that despite different parties in the Pakistan military, and we've only got to read a selection from uh, not just junior officers, but from major generals and lieutenant generals, if we obtain a copy of the Green Book, 
uh, of their firm belief that India still poses a threat and that some of them uh, uh, don't categorically um, say that a war is not a possibility. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think uh, it it will actually occur uh, in the near future. Uh, notwithstanding, there are some significant injection of different parties into um, who control Pakistan. Um, we've seen since the early 70s an Islamization of the Pakistan army. So people always wonder about the threat of an Islamist coup within the Pakistan army. There has been Islamist coups that have been uh, intercepted uh, that included senior officers. Uh, there's been individual coup attempts by se uh, senior officers. Major General Tajamal Hussein Malik attempted to do this um, individually. Um, we've had other officers in a cabal of conspiracy uh, conspiracies involved in uh, wishing to take over the the government. Uh, if if one of the, if there is was a conspiracy in the future that wasn't intercepted, um, war could be a real possibility. Uh, we have a nation that has nuclear weapons. We have a nation that on any given day is one of the largest militaries in the world, especially its army. Um, balancing that against, hopefully, some degree of rational thought in the high command about what would that actually do for Pakistan, except result in its destruction. So, uh, so probably, you know, putting it short, um, there won't be a war or the possibility of a war are unlikely because while this Muslim identity and this martial race and the enmity with India has been the foundations of the army's role in the country, it also realizes that in a case of a war, it would probably decimate itself in the country. Uh, absolutely. And uh, they have a number of antecedents for that in every one of the conflicts it's had with India, despite them arguing otherwise. In the 1965 conflict, they have been defeated. And the 1971 defeat uh, was a catastrophe. So they had the country um, separated, as some say, operation without anaesthetic. And the country was separated. And there are those fault lines still in Balochistan, especially in other areas, uh, that uh, this is a, a risk for Pakistan uh, as well. So they have the idea of uh, uh, their martial race still. It's still repeated. You can find it in army publications. Um, uh, there also has been um, a realisation, one would hope, and a reflection on history. Um, I think uh, you've seen possibly... Uh, um, Henry Kissinger, when he was visiting Pakistan in 1971, said to Yahya Khan uh, very diplomatically, aren't you worried about the superiority of, of uh, India's military? To which Yahya Khan said, don't worry about it. We're Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Ms. Uh, Professor Brisky, thank you very much for this very interesting 
uh, interview. I found it extremely interesting that, you know, you have many people talking about the current role of the um, of the Pakistani army in, in the region and in the conflict with India. Uh, what you have done very skillfully is, uh, you know, try to explain where it comes from, what its foundations are, uh, irrespective of whether it's wrong or right, but at least explaining that there, there is a history to it, which, according to you, even goes further or is, is pre-partition, goes, goes back centuries. And the, one of the most interesting facts which, have you, which you have mentioned is that it even goes back to pre-Islamic uh, times. Well, that's the argument they make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly. The, yeah. Mm, so that's, that's the, the argument. How, why, why is it that they think so? Because they think that their you know, claim to martial race and Muslim, that that can even go beyond you know, pre-Islamic times. I'm very lucky in having a copy of that original publication here, the 1962 History of the Pakistan Army. I would love to have that and read that. Um, I'll send you. I'll send you the links. You can still get it in different places. So, hmm. I think they even reprinted reprint it in India because they yeah. also reprint the Quranic concept of warfare. Uh, General Malik's book. I bought my copy in India. So, okay. Hmm. No, again. Um, extremely indebted to you for for having this uh being here and having having uh, conducted this interview i would uh you of course you in in our in our um in our introduction we talked about you you were in london a, a while ago we would be extremely happy to host you someday either here or in the uk or wherever we organize a conference that would be fantastic to to have you uh I've learned a lot. Well, I thank you a great deal, and I would look forward to another opportunity because I know part of the story, and you and uh, your colleagues and the, the scholars attached to FSAS and your listeners know also a great deal of this story that I would uh, enjoy benefiting from as well. No. Thank you very much. and. Uh... We hope to uh, speak again soon. Thank you very much, Dr. Qureshi. Have a great evening.